also talk to your learners. So use very friendly language and address really your target group. I think in English this is more easier than in German because in German we always have this formal you, you know, uh, it's uh, ich begrüße Sie, I say hello to you, but not in the, in the case of an informal you. This is important and really also say hello to your audience. I think this is something that a lot of videos do not really do good way. So really say, hey, class of 2015, hi, welcome. Now this is our story and I'll see you later. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with guest co-host Mike Jones. Hey, Mike. Hey, Tiffany. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this topic is something I know you're passionate about and um, eager to ask Yosef more questions, and so am I. So we're welcoming back to the show today, Yosef Bukna. Welcome, Yosef. Hi again. Nice to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Last week, we started a discussion about how, at the end of the day, instructional design is what it's really about when we're talking about media and technology in our courses, and today we're going to continue that conversation. For our listeners, if you didn't get a chance to catch part one, you can go back and listen in on your favorite podcast provider, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, you name it. Go back and listen and then join us for part two. So without further ado, let's jump right back in. I'm going to mention two different papers here because I think you really tie them together well. So you've written one called A Framework for the Use of Immersive Virtual Reality and Learning Environments. I want to recommend that to our audience. If you guys are interested in what it is to design for learning in these environments, it's a great place to start. It also has a lot of references to a lot of other work. So thank you for that. But in that paper, you write, meaningful learning allows learners to acquire both knowledge and skills for the purpose of effective problem solving. And that kind of stood out to me because I think about, it's one thing to learn, right? You talk in another paper, the one on your videos about flipping the classroom, right? You teach with the video and then come together and do. And VR, I think, opens that up. It gives us the ability to do both with real-time feedback in an environment where you're taking what you're learning and doing. So I think, like you were saying, applied mathematics, something like that, where you do this to do this in the real world. Okay, well, let's do it in the real world. When you think about how the immersive virtual reality plays into what people would call rich media in learning, you've got it written in the paper. So somebody, I do recommend people read it, but take us through that. What are the building blocks of learning in that type of an environment, say different than a classroom? It's um, the cognitive processes, of course. This is important. And we do not think, we'll not learn. This is also a quote from Dewey. because. This idea is often criticized as being more from cognitive psychology, of course. I don't know the discussion in the US, but in German-speaking countries, there is some critical attitude toward cognitive psychology. But we say, of course, we need cognitive processes, and these cognitive processes need to be addressed. And we can see that if you are in media-rich environments, like virtual reality environments are, then we are in danger that we like this environment, we are overwhelmed by this environment. We are emotionally engaged in this environment, but that at the end, it is possible that as learners, we forget 
what we want to learn in this environment. Yeah. Mm. Um, so it is essential to really think also about these uh, cognitive processes. And as you know, we have to be aware of extraneous processing. So this is the processing that is not helpful, but we need essential processing and we need generative processing. And in my research, I'm particularly interested in generative processing. I really think that Richard Mayer and, and Logan Fiorella did a wonderful job here with bringing out the generative learning principle of multimedia learning theory. And we use this principle in this framework, saying that we need learning activities. It's possible to make learning activities in the virtual reality environment, which is great because then we can do, like you said, Mike, we can realize learning tasks that are maybe not realizable in the real world. So we really can perform tasks that, that we cannot do in the real world, which is also a big advantage or potential of VR. But, and for me, this is an important but, we do not need all the learning tasks in the virtual reality environment. Mm. We can also right. say, okay, it's hard for students to collaborate in the virtual environment. Maybe just because of a technical reason not from a pedagogical or didactical or instructional perspective, but from a technical perspective, it's not so easy to put the students in the same room or in the same learning environment with two headsets. Okay, how to solve it? Easy. Look in the virtual environment through our headset. Then we put the headset up, talk to each other, like we do here now, or also when we are in the same room, of course, solve a problem together that is based on the things we have seen in the virtual environment. And then maybe we go back to the virtual environment. And another thing that is not in this framework, but we are working as a team. I think it's important to say that Miriam Mulders and Michael Keres, are of course, my colleagues here from the Learning Lab at the University of Duisburg-Essen, worked with me together at this framework. We are now doing a further development of the framework where we are writing that most important in all education levels is thinking about virtual reality. So reflecting about the virtual reality experience. You know what I mean? Because every virtual reality environment is designed and developed by human beings. So think about going into the old Colosseum in Rome. It's not the real ancient Rome or Colosseum. It's human-made based on sources that we have found. So it's important when we use such a virtual environment, for example, in history education, to also reflect about this and saying, okay, a human being has built this simulation of the Colosseum. Maybe for adult learners, this is easier. It's, it's really for younger learners that this, I think, is really important. But I would also recommend to do it with adult learners. So if you use virtual reality, also plan some time to talk about the technology per se. So what is the doc technology about? And to give them some time to reflect on the technology. And this will be the further development of the framework, not just stopping at the design, how to design learning activities and the environment, but what comes afterwards, like a, a learning about the technology. In German, it's called Lernen über Medien, not learning from technology, but learning about technology. Fascinating. I hope that no one listening feels like I'm picking on them, but earlier you mentioned AR and VR can't allow us to free our hands. So if we're in that kind of environment, we should be using our hands. There's some enrollment challenges happening in the States, I think you're aware of. And so we hear a lot right now of the buzz of VR and AR. And I've heard a couple of comments mentioned about 
well, maybe we need to do something innovative. Maybe we need to put students in AR and VR and we can just lecture there. And it's like, oh no, <laughs> I don't think lecturing there is going to do it. So this podcast is really important for Mike, for me, for our team, for institutions in the States and abroad to just hear about what it's AR and VR is actually for. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that and give us a framework for thinking. And the cool thing is, again, that uh, when you work with such people that think like this, so you can also say to them, yes, of course, we need a lecture. So we can also say here that we do not want uh, this thinking about black and white. We can say, okay, we do a lecture before and we do this lecture like always. We do it in Zoom or we do it in another video conference or we, or we meet us in a, in a hall and do our lecture. Wonderful. Because the lecture prepares us for what we do in the virtual environment. And maybe this is a, a good way to come also to our second study about the escape room game, where we exactly investigated this idea based on Manu Kapoor and productive failure, where we said, okay, you can also use an escape game or VR and AR before, or you can use it after a lecture. And what we have seen in this study is if you use a lecture before, you prepare the students in such a good way that it is easier later on for them to interact with the content in such a game-based learning environment. And there's also one study from Guido Makransky's lab where they investigated pre-training with virtual reality, and it also worked, especially for such learners that have no experience with virtual reality. So this is the cool thing for you, Tiffany, that you just can say to these people, okay, yeah, yeah, we need a lecture, of course, but we don't do it in, in VR. We do it before and afterwards. Oh, wow, is this cool? You can go into VR and you can train what you have heard in the lecture. Yeah. And then so reflect. Would, after. Yeah, then reflect. And this would be the vision. Of course, you also need the learning goals uh, for such a design. You cannot do it when you're just thinking about learning about facts. Yeah, But we all three know that there are so many learning goals and so many learning domains out there where we need our hands to manipulate or to move objects from A to B to C and then to see what happens. Yeah. I, I just want to pause for just a moment for our audience members. So we're talking about augmented reality and virtual reality, and some people may not be familiar with the term. So augmented reality would be where we're introducing digital assets through a smart device of some sort in the real world. So you might scan a QR code, and Yosef's kind of mentioned that, and on your screen appears maybe a manipulatable 3D object or some other interactive media piece, where virtual reality is, and this is written in your paper, I love the way you wrote it, you wrote, it's an all-inclusive sensory illusion of being present in another environment. And then you followed that by saying VR is considered an I3 technology. So it includes immersion, interaction, and imagination. And that can be mental and physical immersion. So just to clarify the terms when we're talking about those two things in our conversation today, augmented reality is bringing a digital asset into the real world where virtual reality is fully immersive. Thanks, Mike. Oh, wonderful. We're going to be providing links on our website to all of the articles that USF has been involved with, he and his colleagues, and so we're excited for you to check those out. I want to transition for a second, selfishly. Weeks ago, we had a guest on the podcast from Sage Publishers who talked about these video kits that he, during the pandemic, got involved with. So instead of going out and shooting educational videos directly with folks, he was 
shipping out some video kits with some lights and some camera, and then providing some online consultation to faculty members and others who could record videos and then go through some light post-production. I say all this because Mike and I are working on that very thing at the institution that we work for, developing some at-home video kits that we can mail out and have faculty shoot their own videos. So bringing it back to today, Yosef has an article out there on educational videos. And I just love to learn what you've learned, Yosef, about how to make educational videos effective and engaging, to use your terminology, as we begin to coach our faculty. Yeah, video is such an important topic. And I really like Flip Classroom. I'm involved in research here, and I also use it in my practice, also here at the university now. So I was very interested, okay, how can I really design my videos that are effective and engaging, Tiffany, like you said, because as an instructional designer, it is, again, very clear that you cannot just give a video to students or to adult learners. It's really independent of age and say, okay, now watch the video and everything is fine. Yeah. So my first recommendation when you design videos is really to follow the multimedia principles that are, of course, stated by Richard Mayer here. I have to mention him. He's the man who researched or investigated all these principles. So at the first hand, we can say, please use pictures in your videos and use spoken text. So I think this is the most important one. If you have bullet points, then three to four to five, but do not put text on the video and then read the text for your audience. We know that this is a redundancy effect. So this is overwhelming for our working memory. We, we do not need this. Also show in videos processes. So if you have content in your domain that you are teaching and you do not have a process or where you really need a picture, then it's hard to make a video and it's also not too clever to make a video. So if there really is maybe a philosophical text or something like that, that has to be read, then give the learners the text to read if you want to prepare them for class. Yeah, and just saying this as a more general recommendation. Another thing is that you should also talk to your learners. So use very friendly language and address really your target group. I think in English, this is more easier than in German because in German, we always have this formal you, you know, uh, it's uh, ich begrüße Sie, I say hello to you, but not in the, in the case of a non-formal you. This is important and really also say hello to your audience. I think this is something that a lot of videos do not really do good way. So really say, hey, class of 2015, hi, welcome. Now this is our story and I'll see you later. And you also do not have to be uh, visible during a whole video. This is called talking head. Talking head videos, you are familiar with this kind of videos. You have a PowerPoint presentation and in the left or right corner, then you see the professor speaking and this is wonderful. We all love it, but it's not necessary. My recommendation here is be visible at the beginning of the video and say, hi, my name is Joseph, and today I introduce to you cognitive load theory. Have fun. See you later. Then I disappear and I start with the slides and with the idea about cognitive load theory. Maybe, maybe in between, in the middle of the video, I interrupt the video and appear up again. So now you have seen the first two minutes. Just think about what is cognitive load theory again. Write it down in your own words. Just take you one minute and then click on play again. See you later. And at the end of the video, which should be the maximum of six minutes. Of course, there is some research showing that six minutes is more 
uh, rule of thumb, but I think there is some evidence for it. And then at the end, of course, I appear again and say, hi, now you have finished the video. Congratulations, see you in class. I look forward to our discussion or something like this. If you like the stage, then this is no problem for you when you produce videos. If you do not want to be visible, it's also okay. It would be good then to add a photo of you because for students and for learners, it is good to have a picture to the voice that is in the video. And you can also use uh, online tools to integrate questions into the videos, uh, to stop the video, to give some time for reflection, or also to integrate the multiple choice quiz, of course. And what I tested in higher education course is I provided videos with storytelling. So I really said, hello, and now this is the problem you have to solve. And then I go with them through the video. It's in German. And after they watched all five videos with uh, three to four minutes, and afterwards, the learners got a task for me. And this task is a so-called generative task, or you can also say a constructive task, uh, according to, to G and Wiley's ICAP framework. So they really have to do something where they think, and they also have to do something with their hands. So they were engaged in what is the digital circumstances at my school? They have to think about it. They do a strength and a weak uh, analysis. And then they put this in a PowerPoint presentation and they sent me this presentation before we met in the classroom. So this would be a very good recommendation to really yeah, engage learners in constructive or engage in generative learning activities. So for example, giving the learners a mind map about the content, but the mind map is empty or there's just one field of text that is already filled. And then they watch the video and then they put all the new information on the mind map. Uh, so they supplement or add the new information at the mind map. Yeah. I think these are the most important ones. I always say we have to distinguish between video and educational video, but I also get some critic for this idea because I really can say it here. The videos on YouTube are not educational videos. These are videos or these are documentations with 40 or 50 minutes of length. This is not an educational video. We really need this idea, like, I don't know if you know it in the States, uh, H5P tool, where you can design interactive videos. And I really think that this is the, it's the first step. Uh, taking a video from YouTube, maybe, put it into this tool, make an interactive video, also add a table of content, for example, where more experienced learners can decide where to start. Coming back to our prior knowledge idea, if you have adult learners that know a lot about cognitive load theory, maybe they do not want to hear Joseph Buchner again introducing what is cognitive load, but they are interested in the empirical evidence. So they click on the second chapter of the video and directly come into this chapter. And so they feel more autonomy and they feel more intrinsic motivation according to DC and Ryan, for example. That's awesome. I hope so this helps you. You just added two more laps. Oh. I'm still tracking the laps I need. So <laughs> okay. I can really plan my trip to the US or uh, so if you need more, <laughs> yeah. just contact me. Maybe we can also do a research and development project over yes. there. <laughs> I'd love that. I think there needs to be so much more research done in this area, especially when it comes to adult learners. We talked about movements before. I've never done this before, but maybe it's also another thing for videos. What we have seen also in, in the work of Maya, that gestures and body movements, like I try here in this video conferencing tool showing to you, I know that the listeners don't see it, but you see it, also helps 
Yeah, that when you point to things, maybe on a PowerPoint or, or on a light board. Um, so also movements, again, uh, in our whole podcast, help in videos, embodiment principle in the multimedia field. Yes. Yeah, you're right. We tend to shoot just head and shoulders, but having waist up allows us to emote more and express more about what we're doing. When I create videos for my courses that I'm writing, I try and have more of the body and then just a headshot because there's so much more to talk about. And I want to tour them around and show them what I'm talking about. You know, you talked about generative processing earlier and your paper on immersive virtual reality and learning environments really goes into great conversations about cognitive load, how it affects learners and that immersive virtual reality requires a higher cognitive load. But if we plan for it, that's okay. But then you broke that down that generative processing is about conversational language, which gives that personalization, that friendly human voice that they hear. It's not a digital voice. And a lot of videos are doing digital voices now. They shouldn't be used for educational purposes. And then those human-like gestures, which you just talked about, which is the embodiment principle in that generative processing. So for our guests, I highly recommend that paper on the framework for the use of immersive virtual reality. You guys covered that really well. I think we could have an entire another show just talking about cognitive load. <laughs> <laughs> we absolutely can. Yeah. But there are some other experts out there, I think, for cognitive load. Yeah? But yeah, it, it's not everything. It's also, I think, very important for listeners to say that, of course, cognitive load is not, is not everything. We also have to keep in mind effective processes and, of course, this psychomotoric process, of course. But I think it's, it's always a good start to have this in mind. Also, to, to really appreciate this work and to understand, okay, not all learners are the same. We have problems when we are really new to a domain. Maybe we need more guidance. And this is really, really helpful. It, it always shows me in my own teaching that this is true and that this is the case. And that students, also when they are 20 or 25, they are thankful when you help them in a design project, for example. Yeah? They, they have to do some instructional design projects at the university here together with me, and they need guidance. You cannot leave them fully alone. When they get better, then of course I step back. But at the beginning, I try to give them some ideas, also showing them some good examples of how you can design such instructional designs or how you find uh, open educational resources. And then this is helpful for them. Yeah. yeah. I'll let Tiffany end our last question on the list if she's up for that, because I'm going to slide another one in here. So in a couple of your papers, they come back to this idea of instruction first. So from your learning, can you give us just a, say a summary statement, right? On It doesn't matter on the technology. How does that instruction first approach play into learning? Um, I would not say that it's instruction first. I think it's going away from this black and white thinking and saying instruction and every technology we have, it should be normal for us to use the whole bunch of technologies out there if the technology can help our students, our learners to reach their goals. And if we also think about effective learning and uh, as we mentioned before, engaging learning, then I think it's even more important to think about technologies at the same time like instruction. What I really like is what Reeves and, and also Clark and colleagues uh, say, and this is also Michael Keres here in Germany is uh, well known for, for this statement. Think about educational problems and then design technology enhanced learning environments to really solve these educational problems or to help practitioners to solve these problems. 
So if the problem is motivation, then maybe okay. Use a game to really engage them. But do not think that just using the game solves everything. You have to reflect afterwards. You have to do more afterwards. Yeah? So in my PhD thesis, for example, I also show that playing the escape fake game and afterwards summarizing the ideas in your own words is more effective than just playing the game an instructional design perspective. But from an effective idea, escape game can address effective learning outcomes, attitudes better than other learning environments. So we don't have to think in this black and white manner to really think about education problems and try to solve education problems with the help of good instructional design where the use of technology is normal. Excellent. Well, one question that we consistently ask, at least for the last year, if not longer, is for predictions. We've found that some of our guests have become quite prophetic, if that's too strong, but with the future of higher ed and learning, and we can actually see here, I know our guests can't, but we can see you've got a background that says learning lab, exploring the future of learning. So I think this question will be well suited for you too, but it's, if you could make a prediction about the future of learning or the future of higher ed, what's one that you're willing to make here on Digital to Learn? I really think that we will see a lot of blended or mixed or hybrid, however you, you like to call it, learning environments. I think we will, in a very, very near future, where flexibility is so important. Just think about all the moms, all the dads out there that maybe want to become primary school teacher. Do we really want to close the door for them just because they're looking at their kids this is not a good future idea for me. So for me, it's clear we need a flexible curriculums or flexible learning environments that are designed with the help of technology that allow a lot of people to come to our courses, to attend university, to attend higher education and to learn. Mm -hmm. This is really help people to learn uh, through blended learning. I second that. It's a great one. <laughs> That's awesome. And here also, we can, use, we can use AR, we can use VR, we can escape. This is all this blend, yeah? You know, blended learning is not just using a Moodle platform and putting videos on there. We can also engage the learners at home or in another room or in another house with VR, and then we meet again in, at the university. The next time we are online, two times. And the next time we are two times in a lecture hall. We really must also learn to be flexible when we design blended learning. That it is not just, okay, we meet one time online and then we meet in class because it had always done like this. Then we meet again online. No, broke up with this idea and really design it according to the target group. Designing to the target group. I think this would be very good for higher education. But I really have to say I'm critical that higher education institutions will, will do this. Do it, yeah. Do it. Of course, learners, learner-centered, you know, we put the learners first. But one thing I caught on to what you said there that I think is important is rather than just talking about our learners having a blended or a hybrid experience, you talked about maybe our teachers or us having that opportunity. You have a nine-month-old. Mm -hmm. Mike and I have kids or grandkids too. And that's just one element. I mean, but with the way that work and employment is headed too, that all of us can kind of meet each other where we are and, and not rob anybody of an opportunity to give and receive feedback and participate in learning experiences based on geographical location or life responsibilities. <laughs> so it's for everybody. Yeah, I fully um, agree. Not just the learner perspective, yeah. also the teacher or the instructor perspective. Yeah, also for us, it's great. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah. to be at home and to teach and to learn online and of course uh, at the university yeah. yeah i started a list of all the folks that i thought that mike and i should share this these episodes with individual people we should reach out to and then i just kind of gave up at some point and thought i think we're just going to have to send out some university-wide emails not to intimidate you there yosef but um i think this <laughs> needs to go a little bit broader than i was expecting because it's such a critical conversation and between the research you've done and then those that you've mentioned in these two episodes there's so much that we need to read and be reflecting on at the university level. So for sure. thank you for all these rich insights. And I'm confident this is not going to be the last conversation we ever have with you. <laughs> if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, very good questions. Very nice atmosphere here. Very, very nice. Um, I enjoyed it very much. So yeah, come back to me. I always like to talk about learning, about education, about teaching. Um, so man, if you're interested or if our listeners are interested in, in uh research and development project or something like this feel free you find me online <laughs> yes and the next publication that's coming out would love to know when that one lands online so we can resource that one as well yeah, Link yeah. To that. Yeah. i'll write you <laughs> okay thank you yeah, perfect thank you thanks for joining us and sharing your knowledge and your interest in these areas they're going to help us i think as teachers and learners in the future for sure for all of our listeners, you can access links to the research that Yosef and his colleagues have done on our website, digitaltolearn.com. If you don't already, please share this podcast with your friends, like us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, at digital to learn We're so excited to join you again next week with a new guest and a new topic. We'll see you then. Thank you for joining us on digital to learn If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.